Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Crypto Cappuccino with me, Dr. Michael Collo, CEO of the Australian-based digital asset manager and crypto platform, Clans. This series will talk about the development of an exciting new space, cryptocurrencies, focusing on new projects, the opportunities and risks, as well as important developments for all kinds of investors looking to allocate into this space. Before we get into this episode, though, I wanted to share with you an opportunity uh, just very quickly. Our baby, the new clans platform, is currently in open beta and is looking for foundational members to help us shape it. Yes, it's really your chance to help bring a new platform to life. We are looking for first users and members to help us. And so I wanted to ask our community to rally around and help us with our first release. The first 500 members will receive Gen Zero status, which comes with lifetime benefits like priority support, early feature access, and a heap more. Don't worry, you don't have to be Gen Z to uh, enter, obviously, just like me. Plus, you get to tell us what to do and what you'd like to see improved, which is always nice. To find out how you can join us, please see the link in the notes below. Today, I'm starting with a great and kind of broad introductory conversation with Rory Manchi from Brave New Coin, but the journey he's been on to get into this industry and how he sees the development of cryptocurrencies as an asset class and eventual adoption by institutional and professional investors. If you're new to this space, like me, you're an investor, maybe an advisor, or maybe just a tourist interested um, and want to get the lay of the land, I think this is an excellent episode to get you started. I hope you can join us. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Michael Collo, and I'm here joined by Rory uh, Manchi from uh, Brave New Coin. Hi, Rory. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Michael. Nice to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with us today. I think I was fascinated by a conversation because I think this is such a, a, a sort of interesting new space. Everyone's kind of learning about it. And it's often hard to find people who have seen a part of this industry evolve through the, the various mechanisms. So when you uh, initially told me about your history in this space and, and how you've come to be here, I was all ears and I thought that would be an, a nice place to start as well for our listeners. So yeah, I'd love to hear a bit about how you came to be here, Rory, and, and how that journey uh, has taken you to this moment. Yeah, so um, currently I'm the head of business development at Brave New Coin, which is a market data and index and content provider for the digital and crypto asset markets. And I've been in this role since um, 2016, so coming up for six years, in fact. But my first encounter, if you like, with Bitcoin and crypto was probably 2013. Um, I'd been going to a lot of uh, fintech meetups and uh, startup pitch nights here in Melbourne. And one of the first companies I saw in this space was a company called uh, Coinjar, which you may be familiar with. Um, and they were pitching at that time that their startup, their digital wallet and digital exchange for crypto. And it was interesting. And I thought, yeah, okay, I get some of these cases, but the technology was a little above me. And I thought, I need to learn more about this. Um, you know, I got to know uh, Ashatan a little bit through that and also introduced to a gentleman called uh, Torsten Hoffman, who is a filmmaker. And around the same time, he made a documentary on Bitcoin, which if you haven't seen or seen his more recent one, I, I thoroughly recommend uh, that you do so. But Torsten, I guess, was pursuing a slightly different path. And then one day he said, oh, you should meet this guy called Fran, Fran Steiner, who's the uh, CEO and one of the co-founders of Brave New Coin. And Fran and I met at a meetup, as you do. And he was talking about what Brave New Coin was doing in the uh, data and index space and had just launched their first Bitcoin index, the BLX. 
And this light bulb moment, this eureka moment went off in my head because I'd come from uh, a long career in financial data and information with uh, Standard & Poor's and before that, uh, Thomson. And when Fran started talking about the index and everything, it was like, aha, you need indices, you need benchmarks for price discovery, uh, performance management, risk management, etc. And, you know, he and I had a chat over a few glasses of red, as you do, and the rest is history. I think a month later, I, I signed up. And uh, at that time, I was number seven with Brave New Coin. The company had been set up about 2014, uh, primarily at that stage as a content business, and then had moved into the data and index. So I guess my journey into crypto has been slightly different um, because I, I guess I had that legacy background. I also had that innate curiosity. And I guess I was just you know, intrigued to see where it could go. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be in a position to join a startup like this. And um, even though it's been a roller coaster of a ride, you know, six years later, I'm still here. And if anything, you know, the business and the industry and the market is just getting busier and, and it's just more exciting, uh, notwithstanding everything else that's going on in the world. Um, yeah, it's been a really fascinating journey for me. And this, that's really interesting. So what have you seen evolve in this space? In, in that sense, because obviously six years is a lifetime in the crypto world. It's yeah. a number of projects. So, yeah, just curious to see how have you seen that change? Well, I think, you know, a lot of what crypto's had to do, um, more than blockchain perhaps, is establish legitimacy for itself. And we're still on that journey. I think the uh, idea that this is a whole new asset class is valid and fundamental to your understanding. You know, forget the technology for a moment because I'm not a techie, but, you know, understanding that this is a new asset class uh, is really important. Secondly, this was probably the first asset class which was retail first and institutional later. So you had early adopters, self-directed uh, traders, out-out crypto maximalists, libertarians, et cetera, getting into this because for whatever reason, they saw this as, as, a, as a future um, technology and use case. Um, we've then seen, again, to reflect that, almost like a reverse in technology. So if you remember back in 2016, 17, suddenly we had the birth of the ICO, initial coin offering. And this was a, a way of issuing uh, tokens um, via something that was akin to an IPO that had none of the regulatory or other structures for good and bad. And so with that came suddenly, you know, regulatory clampdown. Oh, hang on a minute. That ICO is actually a security. You have to do a filing. You have to be an approved issuer. You had to do all these other things. Okay. A lot of projects got burned, but a lot of projects also then have come through that. And those that have, have actually survived and are stronger. Then we had a lot more focus on the KYC AML aspect because you know all these exchanges and quasi brokers that were acting as fiat on ramps to crypto, what were they doing to ensure that you know the customers uh, were legitimate, that they had the right credentials, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's been a lot of focus on that here. Obviously in Australia, you've got you know likes of Austrac, then you've got Blockchain Australia that are providing that that regulatory framework and guidance for the industry to say, okay, you're going to do this properly you need to you know, adopt these certain standards and rules and everything. And then finally, we're saying this, okay, well, if we, if we assume that you're playing in this space and you're doing the right thing, it's only natural then that you will want to register, whether that's with ASIC or the SEC or equivalent regulatory bodies. Now, again, that has pros and cons, but I think the more and more I talk to people in the space, particularly people who've been here for a number of years, 
is they accept that regulation is is required. They generally see that it's a positive thing because it'll bring that additional legitimacy and it will basically uh, give frameworks and standards uh, that have been lacking to date. And the downside, of course, is that you get over-regulation and you get something which is either a knee-jerk reaction or is uncoordinated at an international or global scale. So then you get forum shopping and you get a whole plethora of different regimes. And that just makes it really difficult for anyone uh, that's you know, in, a, in a decentralized distributed world trying to do business cross-border. So I think that's sort of where we're at at the moment. Um, I think there's some real positives here in Australia, A, because we've had some really long-standing businesses um, to, you know, to see uh, us grow up in this space here in Australia. Secondly, now we've got, you know, a bit more institutional um, interest coming in, whether that's from the fund management and asset management side or banking and financial services. And then, of course, there's the work that uh, the likes of, you know, Senator Andrew Bragg has been doing around the whole um, framework and roadmap for uh, for crypto and blockchain. So, look, you know, I wouldn't necessarily agree 100% everything they've done or the way they're going about it, but I think you have to give them credit for engaging with the industry, taking the debate into Parliament, into Senate, and coming out with some constructive ways forward. So I think that's sort of where we are on that regulatory framework. Um, I happen to talk about more about not so much the tech, but the, the product development that's coming out of tech, because I think that's the next interesting phase. And maybe some um, other trends we're seeing, both from an institutional uh, investment and asset management side, but also where this is now crossing over into not just legacy financial markets and cap capital markets, but also into you know legacy corporate, how they're engaging with blockchain and crypto. No, I, I think all of that is is amazing to see. But before we even get there, I suppose the interesting question for me is, as as this kind of idea sweeps across use cases, as you say, and either sweeps up the fiduciary chain to you know institutional and and higher end of the market, which as you said is a very fascinating idea that it didn't start there; it kind of started the other way. So it kind of, it kind of that needs to make its way up that hill, um, as well as to the corporate use cases. I suppose one of the, the interesting questions from me, and this is more of a conceptual question, but how much of the value do you think of this movement into decentralized is about um, getting away from centralized control? Because a lot of the things I read in this space, it starts with almost a um, slightly anarchist or rebellious kind of Woodstock feeling of there is the man, whoever that is, central banks or central agencies and so on. And we want to get away from that uh, centralized control because they're just not very good or they're not helping us. So there's a disillusionment with institutions, which we've seen across a martyr of other use cases, probably over the last five or 10 years, if not before that. Um, so I feel like, do you feel like it's going to retain that feeling once regulation comes through? Because I think we'll agree that regulation will come through. Um, or do you think that that's just going to squeeze that element of that of this world further into the uh, kind of decentralized and and, and non-regulated space? Yeah, interesting question. So I think there's there's probably a couple of parts to that. The first thing is obviously um, you know the use cases are not just within financial services. So blockchain and even crypto are going to permeate. Uh, non-financial services use cases. So that's the first thing. We'll get used to that. Secondly, um, the uh, reaction or or the impetus, I guess, really for Bitcoin, if, if you look back at the history, 
in large part was what happened at the GFC, where our existing banking system and financial system somewhat failed, but because of this whole too big to fail thing, governments and regulators felt honored bound somehow to bail out these financial institutions. And, you know, a lot of people didn't think that was the right outcome. And so, you know, Bitcoin itself was seen as a way of um, addressing that issue with the decentralized um, cryptocurrency and the blockchain that underpins it and uh, cryptography to secure it, etc. Um, I don't think the, that that element will disappear. I think some people will elect to find other ways to circumvent, just as we always get, you know, uh, use, users who are opting out of the system. But I think the greater impetus is in making this a better experience for the end user. And now a lot of that still has to be through, I guess, regulatory frameworks, but hopefully in a way that's not going to stifle that innovation and creativity that some of those decentralized um, initiatives and projects have brought. But I also take some comfort in the fact that, you know, even in, in Australia with that framework, we're given uh, uh, credence to, we're given credence to DAOs, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations. These are likely to be the companies and the organizations of the future. So if you have that framework uh, and you, you say that this is a new form of governance and a new way of forming capital, to, for a particular purpose, then I don't see how that fully squeezes out that DeFi decentralized um, component because it's an inherent part of the DAO model. It's just that it's now going to have a, a more formal structure, one, in part so that a DAO can be legally recognized. So it not only has rights and entitlements, but of course it has obligations and it needs to provide protections to participants. So that's how I, how I see it. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Look, I have very much an economics background, so I went through the academic sort of roadmap, and, and so much of that we talked about uh, risk being kind of a central part of, of the system and risk management, and this idea of deposit insurance and the idea that it's too big to fail and has to be protected because of that um, element that it's a kind of last bastion of risk. So it, it's not allowed to lose money. You know, your deposit is not allowed to lose money and so on. Um, and I think that's always been the kind of tension is the fact that these things are not allowed to lose money and the companies that are governing them, aka your accounts, also have to make money through, through profit uh, for shareholders. So that's always been a, a really interesting tension uh, between the two things. I feel like I, I sort of definitely want to move you on to the next section now, though, which is more about how you see the Insto framework. And then maybe we can return to the corporate a bit later. So how do you see that? Uh, how do you see those uh, participants coming to the market, how did they think about this type of uh, asset class, I suppose? How, how does that fit into their uh, modeling, into their uh, asset allocation, in, into, into their offerings? Yeah, so I think at the moment, they're still figuring that out. I mean, most of the financial institutions I've talked to, not just here in Australia, but in Europe and North America, in large part, they're still figuring out how do we access or, or sorry, how do we provide access to this asset class to our existing customers? And how do we as an organization make it uh, compliant, make it you know, risk averse as possible in line with our other offerings? And so what you're seeing is probably you know, engagement with some of the technology around things like custody and account management. I think, I think that's a really interesting area. So I'm going to maybe revisit the thing that you said earlier about the institutional adoption area. So that's Obviously, an area that we see a lot of growth in. We see institutional, um, I suppose, 
players dipping their toes, trying to find out what this means for them. What does it mean for their risk modeling for their asset allocation decisions, their overall portfolio structure and product range as well. Just love to get your thoughts on and what you've seen and, and how you think that's going to go. Yeah, so look, I think it's, uh, you know, just talking to institutions here in Australia, but also overseas in Europe, North America and Asia, um, it's definitely, you know, the mood has blown hot and cold. Um, you say dipping a tone of water, you know, a lot of firms didn't necessarily or don't necessarily want to be first into this space, but they certainly don't want to be last. Secondly, I, I think some of them have to figure out how they're going to engage in it, both for themselves as an institutional and as a, as a product manufacturer or distributor, and then how do they give access to their customers uh, to these uh, assets. Um, I think some of them have engaged more on, the, on some of the technical aspects, just so they can understand it, because they need to figure out things like custody and account management and reporting and all that sort of thing. Then they've got to figure out, okay, well, how do we, how do we allow someone to trade Bitcoin in the same way that they trade equities or futures on their portfolios? And I think that is still being figured out. Um, and so what you're seeing is uh, a, a downward distribution model. So we're seeing, you know, the evolution of futures, uh, contracts and, and derivatives, which are aimed more at uh, institutional um, investors and participants. Then you've got some, you know, ETF, ETP type products, which again, aimed at institutions. And now how do those get distributed through other managed funds or other products to, to retail customers? That's still being figured out. Um, you know, I, I think it won't be too long, though, before you log into your ComSec or your Charles Schwab account and you will be trading um, crypto assets. Whether you can do everything in that environment that you can possibly do going direct to an exchange or using a decentralized exchange, I think obviously we'll, we'll probably see some limitations on that. But ultimately, that's the that's got to be the path to transition. Challenges is still, though, at that asset management um, institutional level is, well, what sort of allocation? Where do I fit this new asset class in my, my portfolio allocation? Is it a emerging market? Is it akin to a whole new group of assets? Is it linked to, you know, my um, uh, uh, risk-weighted assets in, in some way? You know, if, if I'm using stable coins, is that akin to uh, fixed income and, and treasuries? Some of this is still being nutted out, but the first, you know, institutional uh, asset consultants who can get this right, if they're, you know, advising their clients on a strategic allocation to crypto, and there are the appropriate products, safeguards, risk mitigation, etc., to go with it, the first ones that solve that um, will probably, you know, dominate the market, and or at least take a fair chunk of the market in the early stage because they'll figure out how to join the dots from you know A to A to B to C. The other thing is um, there's obviously because of that retail first component, there are a lot of um, uh, retail or semi-professional investors like self-managed super funds, family offices who are already in crypto, and so they're being serviced by someone, but it's not being done by their traditional financial advisors and, and um, brokers. And that's that's something that, you know, in, if you're in that sort of legacy space, you've got to figure that out. Otherwise, you don't have oversight of that part of someone's portfolio. You're missing out on that value. And, and I think, I think just, just to go back to this whole thing, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the 
one of the things I found really difficult at the beginning to get my head around is why people use the word currency, like cryptocurrency, when really, um, obviously, this is quite a rich ecosystem, some of which are storage of value for transacting digitally, but some of which are represent um, tokens or currencies of projects and, and much more kind of smarter areas. So I felt like the word currency didn't really do justice to the space. And it also kind of almost misaligned this idea that, um, it, it, like, for example, a live currency, why, why would I have in my portfolio a currency allocation sleeve that's buying Japanese yen or euros or something? Um, it, it would feel like a really long stretch for me to do that. But if you said to me, look, there's a VC fund here, or there's a kind of early stage technology fund that is investing in all these kinds of interesting projects, fintechy type projects, that will displace banks or provide alternative mechanisms for marketing, so metaverse related or whatever, um, then it would suddenly make sense to me. Although again, what fascinates me about this area is, and, and maybe this is where you can correct me, um, uh, unlike let's say equities or fixed income, where I am buying the securities of a business that is pro generating profits, employs people, has an economic footprints, economic activity, et cetera. It feels like in some of these cases, I'm actually buying um, representations of value of a project or an idea, but it's not really clear what part of that value chain. It's certainly not a business with a PL line and earnings behind it. It's something else. And it almost feels like um, uh, maybe, maybe this is my interpretation is that early stage angel fund or VC investment where you say, look, I've got an idea. I don't yet know fully how it's going to function as a business. But I think it's a very powerful idea. And I think we can kind of re-engineer uh, or redo a particular thing that is being done in the world with this technology. Would you like to give me some money or would you like to get involved in this project and have a representation of value that you, you will derive value from if the project is successful, if it goes somewhere in the future? I mean, that, that, to me, that this is kind of like a, when I look across the coins and, and all the uh, uh, sort of elements and I look at the the return distributions, which are which are anything but normal, kind of like nothing, 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 huge, you know. Um, it feels to me like more of a uh, exploratory angel VC type space than it does a currency space. I don't know. What, what do you think? I, I think if you if you were looking at it from a financial, purely from a financial asset model, and and how these projects, uh, all these putative businesses get funded, maybe. But if you look back at the ICO, look at the amount some of those ICOs were raising through these public token sales, and I'm not. You know, I'm underscoring or recommending them or anything. I'm just saying that this. The fact is, that if if an ICO project raised 1.3 billion dollars or whatever, that's far beyond VC angel money. You know, so it it should have it sort of showed is in some ways that the model that model was somewhat broken. Um, I agree that you know these uh, assets, let's call them that, aren't the same as a currency. They're not necessarily the same as a company stock but they do have attributes that you can tie back to them. So if you own a utility token or you would own a token that represents some sort of token uh, network or marketplace, then uh, if it's structured the right way, you as a token holder get a number of benefits. One is, you know, you get access to that network. You may even get um, premium pricing. You then share in the, in the, in the gain, financial gain, a capital gain, if you want, of, of the token, but you also get distribution through the benefits of what that project is doing. Now, all that has to be tested against appropriate you know, regulation and laws and everything and, and, and you know, future promises and all that sort of stuff. But the point is that framework 
is there and is starting to be deployed into areas, you know, whether it's NFTs or whether it's the use of uh, micropayments and, and how Web3 now is plugging more value into, into internet applications and, and decentralized applications. Um, whether or not you see those as traditional stocks or equities, I don't think is necessarily the question. They have attributes of their own and the value will be generated by the token users, the network effect and the returns that can be generated through that, that scaling and adoption. And I think, I think, but, but I think this is one of those bridges that we have to build in terms of the, the traditional finance view versus uh, what we have on the ground here, because everything you described here about access to the network, to the product, to the, the it feels like it's a much more intimate relationship between token holders and those projects. It feels like you're much closer. Whereas I feel like institutional asset management certainly has moved to a very vast distance away. So as an example case, you, you and I are probably super holders. Our super funds are invested in diversified likely portfolios, uh, which holds hundreds, if not thousands of securities that we don't even know about. And they're out there doing something, some kind of product. And while ESG and other uh, movements have tried to vet that list of, of stocks to, to be more aligned with our value system, probably you and I really couldn't tell where our capital uh, is in the global financial system and who's it being lent out to and what are they doing with it. So I, I suppose what's interesting for me is that some of these strong tendencies toward community or value-based investing and so on, which, which feels like they're much closer aligned to people's views are, um, as you say, um, you know, being represented here a lot clearer and at scale. Because when you're talking about a billion dollars worth of coin raise, that's not a uh, cottage industry, right? That's not passing around the hat in a community fair going, let's go and build something together. Isn't that going to be fun? So the scale of the money here is, is quite staggering. Yeah, well, look, that was peak ICO. I don't think any projects would aspire to or expect to achieve any level of funding like that anymore because that was just a phenomenon at that time. Uh, I think now expectation is a lot more modest. There is a lot more work gone into the, the structuring of token sales, who do you get involved in the early stage, which is somewhat akin to the VC angel uh, investing because you bring in strategic partners, not just, you know, the money. And, and secondly, you have a roadmap as to, you know, what you're going to release, when, how you're going to do that. And you, you basically um, have, a, have, a, have a framework that you hold yourself accountable to. I think the, um, the other piece around some of these, these projects is, yes, they are um, more in tune with their community, but just as with companies, not every member of the community is necessarily going to be an active token holder. Um, they may rely on other people to, to make those sort of decisions for them. So you could still can have a gradation of, of participants. Um, and I, I think just to be a bit controversial for a second, you say, you know, we don't know what our super funds are investing in. Well, they're supposed to report to their members as to, you know, what's in their account and what's the movement. But imagine if a, if a super fund was completely on the blockchain. Every time they bought or sold, an equity or, or bond, whatever, it was recorded in a transaction and you could you could see it. Um, I think that might give some call, cause for, not concern, but pause for thought perhaps by you know, some of these funds. But, but it's a great question because I think, so I happen to, this is an area I can actually talk to, uh, so that's good. Um, but if I, uh, let's say, for example, the MSCI World Index 
So that's a kind of well-known global index to cover you know, global equity exposure. Has about 1,600 of the world's largest stocks in it, weighted by capital weights, mostly Apple and Amazon and so on at the top. And then there's a long, long tail. And each one of these companies, including the ones in the long, long tail, have multiple operations around the world and they have multiple business divisions and they have multiple things. So if you really wanted to ask the question, gee, I wonder what my money is doing just on the equity side, you would have to take those 1600 apart into those segments and understand them and so on. And I, and I think the reason that this industry has become so big and scalable into the trillions, I think BlackRock is hitting, is, is closing in on $10 trillion worth of assets on the management, which is insane. Um, is because of this notion of uh, and embracing diversification. So if diversification is your friend, then you want to have lots and lots and lots of assets. And I suspect that this uh, the digital, digital asset space will uh, probably end up going the same way if enough people from the traditional asset management space go and go over there and say, right, I know how this works. I'm going to create massively diversified portfolios. And how have you thought about the benchmark problem? I guess you have some uh, expertise. In this oh, area. yes. Yeah, look, I mean, we've seen all sorts of iterations of this. Um, we ourselves at Brave New Coin, we create indices which are basket indices. So they reflect perhaps a sector of assets or a, a category of assets. And we try and create weighted baskets, which then can provide uh, indices for um, derivatives and, and, and asset allocation, et cetera. I think it's a huge problem at the moment because there's no formal classification system for crypto assets. They're not all the same, obviously. And there's huge differences from a technology, from a market cap, and from just a use case perspective. So another thing that Brave New Coin does is create that classification system to help asset managers screen for opportunities and then build a, a portfolio. But of course, you know, we don't have the same sorts of things you would have in an equities portfolio where you've got fundamentals, you can read the P&Ls, you can look at the earnings per share, et cetera. That doesn't exist in crypto, but there are fundamentals there and people looking at those factors or looking to identify factors that, that give them an edge. And that's where a lot of our conversations are at the moment. I mean, if there's, I mean, we track, I think something like 1,500 to 2,000 different digital assets. No way could you build a meaningful portfolio on that. And, and even if you're an institution like MSCI, that's going to be quite an expensive deployment of capital to get exposure and in a meaningful way to all those assets and then manage it. So I don't think we're going to see, you know, long tail funds here. There are different approaches. I mean, as I said, a sectoral sector approach uh, could be appropriate. Um, top 10, top 20 might make sense uh, if you, you know, look at it and say, well, actually, I don't want stable coins in there because I'm not getting yield so much for those. Um, another way is simply to say, well, you know, rather than stock picking, I'm going to take a view that the next of the next 10 or 20 coins that, that, that get issued, you know, two of them will make it, but I don't know which two are. So I'll take some exposure to all of them and then have a strategy to diversify out of that, et cetera. So, you know, there, there are ways of looking at that um, asset allocation. Um, the, uh, the, um, the other piece here is, you know, getting some sense of the, uh, the, the scale and the um, comparabilities, both within crypto and then other uh, asset classes, the correlation and and uh, diversification against those. And look, there's been quite a bit of, you know, analysis on that. Um, clearly, it, it has waxed and waned as crypto markets have gone up and down. But I think there's enough uh, time series data, and our data goes back to 2010, I think, on Bitcoin. You know, there's enough time series data there, there available to say, okay, 
if you had a, done allocation to crypto in some shape or form, um, this is what your return would have been over over five, three, or even just two year horizon that they would typically look at for backtesting purposes. And it's getting insights on that, which is now giving you know, asset managers um, and portfolio managers, getting them interested, um, but they need the tool, they need the analytics and they need the data to help run those those um, strategies. Um, and that's, that's starting to emerge, I think. I, mean, I think I think that's a, a really important point. It's so much of the institutional market works off data backtesting, proof, et cetera. And or I'm guessing then when you lined up Bitcoin relative to any other asset class, if you chose to, to think about it as an asset class, and you chose the right window, it would just blow everything out of the water, right? Because the returns have been so astronomical. But this is why it probably gets compared to, I don't know, a micro caps or something like that. But then, of course, it's too big now. It's like 700 billion in, in um, you know, in, in total outstanding. So I feel like it's sort of in risk return space. It's still a little bit, you know, young. And so I, I, I'm guessing that the traditional backtesting methodologies of factor analysis and, and all these things are going to be a little bit stumped by by the time series, even if it's time series analytics behind it. But I guess the, 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 that to me is what makes it fascinating, a redefinition of what fundamentals means for a project like this. What are the criteria? What are the analytics? What are the right ratios to assess one versus another? Because ultimately, uh, other than time series and, uh, and analysis, it'll be a relative analysis. So for example, if your benchmark ends up being a standard benchmark that asset management used, they'll have to beat that benchmark to do that. They'll have to do that relative gauge and, and studying and so on. So I think it's it's a look it's it's a fascinating area and I think it's it's a whole new branch of finance I could imagine coming through which isn't based on the 1930s 20s type stock pickers mentality and mindset which we've seen propagate and evolve surely but concepts like value for example have been around since the 1930s so you shouldn't uh, you know be be too thrilled with yourself if you come up with a value based portfolio inequities. But I think when it comes to these types of assets or these types of projects, understanding the valuation is, is almost akin to understanding the business case for a DeFi product core, for example, um, and then understanding the, its usage and, and, and how that will percolate through. No, I, I agree. And look, you know, the other factor um, when you're looking at crypto, of course, is the price volatility. And, and that would just put it out of the reach of a lot of traditional models because how, how can you absorb that amount of volatility unless you have a strong um, way of managing and capturing that volatility? So I agree, you know, the, um, the approach has got to evolve and you've got to have, if not, you know, core fundamentals, you've got to identify what are the factors that are making a difference in crypto. And so we, we do spend time looking at, you know, quasi-corporate actions in this space. So what does a what does a hard fork mean here? What does a, a token burn mean? What does you know, this event mean? Uh, and and some of that is providing a, a I don't call it qualitative, but it's it's creating some sort of event driven um, analysis over the pricing and market cap analysis, the technical analysis that, that all the chart um, chart um, developers are using. But I, th I think the uh, the refinement of that is is still evolving as to, okay, well, what is going to give me an edge if I'm now looking to uh, construct a uh, diversified portfolio that's going to perform similar to the way I would expect an early stage opportunities or growth opportunities or 
a um, income generating uh, portfolio? What do I look for in crypto to either replicate that or give me a, a proxy perhaps for, for some of those um, more traditional styles of, of uh, investment strategy? And, and I think, I think that, that that's an excellent kind of analogy, which is, as I said before, when you hold a portfolio in equity land, you either hold it, hold it for the price appreciation or for some kind of fundamental outcome, dividends, yields, those kinds of things. Um, similar with bonds, although bonds have embedded this kind of yield component, unless you're talking about very low grade, which kind of determines where you're going to end up at. But I, I do find it fascinating that this notion of value in trade versus sort of fundamental returns and so if today you're invested in a hedge fund, as an example, um, you have already bought into the idea of value in trade. You're already bought into the notion that somebody can buy and sell a security and make money on their price difference, no matter what the fundamentals are doing. You don't even need, then, then there doesn't need to be any dividends. Or if you're buying a high-tech portfolio, you're already bought into the idea that you're just going to make money through prices appreciating, that you're never going to see a cent of dividends. And so, if but you, you've, you've sorry, but you, you, but you, but you have already determined that there is value in that sector, based on 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 the industry classification. You have it's high tech or something. You, you've already, you've determined that there is there is a reason to be in that sector. Not necessarily. Maybe you've determined that other people will think that there's a value in the sector, right? So a lot of this stuff is around. Okay. Is it's about the uh, Keynesian beauty parade, right? It's you don't have to necessarily pick something that's fundamentally great. You just have to pick something that gets revalued or considered to be fundamentally great or, or great for any reason for that matter. So you often you're trying to try to front run demand from other people. Either way, it's the price appreciation that you look to capture. So if you think about like a, a typical hedge fund that has a daily holding period, a weekly holding period, they're typically trying to forecast signals to the markets, so earnings and, and other announcements that will make other people revalue the company at a higher level. It helps them not at all to understand fundamental forecasts, information coming out that doesn't help revalue the company. And so in that context, I feel like Bitcoin uh, you know, strategies or any kind of crypto strategies for that matter that work on just uh, beating price or having a price-based return hold the same philosophy as, as, as what a, a kind of typical hedge fund would. And then I suppose in the DeFi space, it's more about the staking portfolios and these income generation portfolios that I, I still feel like haven't quite figured out what the right counterparty risk measure is. Because I feel like it's highly unnatural to be getting between 10 and 15% rate of return forever in an ongoing basis on uh, a essentially US dollar type uh, coin. I, I feel like that's, that's, th th there's a latent risk here in the background that we haven't yet encountered because it's so early in the days. Well, yeah, but I, I think those those sorts of returns are only expected to happen for a short period of time, um, and that's that's probably you know high risk, high reward, you know early movers. Uh, I, I think the mechanisms though for valuing collateral and and whether that's on margin lending or on staking to then lend out, those um, uh, collateral management tools will only improve for crypto as they have in other asset classes. And then the third thing is that there's probably, you know, untapped demand in terms of you know, capital looking for a home here. And things like stable coins could be the way the vehicle, like if I'm holding, you know, New Zealand dollars and uh, I know that there's a demand in Brazil for borrowers there, at the moment, I can't do that through traditional lending. But if I can stake my New Zealand dollars 
and it's then available on a liquidity pool uh, to uh, borrowers in Brazil, where I can generate more than I'm getting in Reserve Bank rates in New Zealand, then that's an opportunity. Now, it's not going to last forever, but that that is something that could be or will be and is being facilitated by uh, use of stable coins, staking models, and and obviously DeFi and decentralized exchanges. So yeah, I I think it's it's sort of emerging, should we say? Well, it's interesting because as you said, there's almost this notion of new things, new coins, etc. But then there's this other element, which is the translation of today's financial securities into that digital blockchain space. Um, and therefore making them a lot more powerful than they are today. And I'm guessing people are already working on obviously how to replicate share price of Apple or, or any other kind of stock in that yeah. blockchain fashion so that it can be just as widely circulated and accessible as the um, as anything else. Yes, and we haven't even started talking about tokenization of assets. So yes, exactly to your point, uh, Michael, you can tokenize um, equities and then have them available for you know fractional ownership or wider distribution uh, based on on the token uh, being representation of the underlying asset or the equity in this case. And so, yeah, I, I think the next phase will, of this industry will see a lot more around the, the use case for tokenization and the technology that's going to be deployed to do that, whether it's smart contracts, whether that's things like digital asset markup language or whatever, that's going to be... Um, you know, focus for some time to come because that will also underpin things like structured products for listing on exchanges. Uh, it'll, you know, underpin things like ETFs where you're looking to, you know, ex- take exposure physical or synthetic to, to, to Bitcoin, say, uh, and then you're looking to, um, originate these funds and then distribute them to, uh, retail shareholders or unit holders. Um, that whole, model is predicated on you know things like the, the tokenization and the ability to represent uh, the underlying asset but in a way that conforms with you know the custody the trustee and the other requirements that an etf needs to have before it can be listed on a, on a traditional exchange yeah it's it's fascinating again for people that work in this industry either from the finance other side you can kind of see how the lego building blocks come together I think for people outside this industry, they're kind of just like looking at it. Going at it. I followed like some of that, but it, it feels like it's um, for us. We can think about how we take each component of what we do in an asset management space and recreate it on the blockchain with the net effect that it's faster, easier, more transparent, um, and we can recombine them in an efficient way. But um, I want to be conscious of, of your time, and you've been extremely generous today. So I want to thank you for that. I have one last question uh, before we uh, finish off. Is I suppose you, um, what are you most looking forward to this year development in this space? Like what, what's your, what's your passion? What's your zing that you're going to go? Yep. That's really exciting. That should be coming this year, hopefully, or maybe even next year. And, and, and I'm really excited about that. Oh, okay. There's a few things. Uh, I mentioned web three and micropayments uh, and NFTs. I, I think there's some really interesting projects that are involved in that space, whether that's um, in the area of things like a digital content, whether that's art, music, or, um, you know, text-based publications where we still haven't yet seen a really good, uh, business model for, for micropayments. And I think that's going to be really important for end consumers, whether or not they realize they're dealing with blockchain and, you know, handling crypto. That's, that's going to be quite important. I, I think, um, you know, the emergence of a fully fledged physical backed ETF um, for crypto is is definitely on the cards. Uh, I think 
progress in tokenization uh, is going to um, emerge this year. And that's all going to be underpinned again by the sort of institutional interest. And then finally, uh, look, personal sort of involvement in a project outside Brave New Coin. I've been working uh, with a company here in Australia that uh, did an NFT in the um, branded spirits space. That was quite interesting. Uh, I think, you know, we'll see some, some more developments like that because I think brands now and brands have been, have been driving a lot of our engagement in digital over the last few years, but brands now are trying to figure out, okay, where do we play in the space and, and how do we um, utilize some of this technology to better engage with our customers and uh, give customers a better experience, a more personalized experience at the same time, um, bringing uh, value to our stakeholders, whether that's our manufacturers and producers or our distributors and, and retailers. Um, yeah, that, that whole ecosystem probably is, is probably what, what I find interesting as well. No, that's fantastic. So by the end of the year, we're going to have a, a spirit with that kind of an, an NFT perhaps hanging behind you on the wall, maybe? It's so out there already. It, it's <laughs> out there. It, 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 the project's already launched. They did a, an NFT sale late last year and it's gone really well. And so, you know, I expect to see uh, more similar projects. Um, obviously, um, you know, the use case has to be there and, and, the, and the, the value proposition has to exist. It's not just about the technology, but yeah, I think a lot of these projects are, you know, validation and proof of concept, but they will be the ones that will drive adoption because they'll have figured it out, you know, how to engage with a marketplace or to uh, figure out the distribution and uh, um, promotion and even just the physical minting of these tokens, figuring all out the tech stuff. Because, you know, the UX UI is still a little clunky here and there. But that's the beauty of this uh, industry, right? It, it's it's uh, that we're going to be looking back even on this conversation in three or five years and going, wow, geez, um, you know, that was the beginning or that was something else. So that, that's that's really what drew me to this space. I'm sure similarly with you at the very beginning is is well, on one hand, the possibilities of where I could go, but also just the vibrancy of, of that ecosystem and, and the new projects and ideas um, coming through. So that that's fantastic. And I want to thank you so, so much for your time. I look forward to uh, seeing uh, more and more action and from you and obviously visiting the website, which I love. So it's, it's a really good, good product, great website. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, um, people can contact me through Brave New Coin or through socials pretty easily if they have any questions. Thanks for joining me in this first episode of Crypto Cappuccino. If you liked the episode, please rate and review. See you next time. Bye.